Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am not Justin Lee Burke, but I am Chris the Chimanchu, and I'm here with our showrunner, Sam Mazur. But we are here in collaboration with another podcast, Peds Crit. I have Alice and Zach here. Do you want to introduce yourselves and a little bit about why you guys are here? Yeah. Um, I'm Alice. I'm a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and I'm Zach Hodges. I'm a critical care fellow at UT Southwestern Dallas. Yes. And what and is Peds Crit? Crit- <laughs> yeah. Pete's Crit is a collaborative educational pediatric critical care podcast. We're interviewing our favorite pediatric critical care educators around the world to talk about their favorite teaching points. Excellent. And you guys are here with us today with our amazing guest to talk about pediatric ARDS. And so to get us on our way, Sam, can you remind our listeners what our podcast is about? Would love to, Chris. So we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Today, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Yaya. He is an associate professor of anesthesiology and critical care and pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and an attending physician in the PICU at CHOP. His research interest really encompasses all aspects of pediatric respiratory failure with a particular emphasis on pediatric ARDS and mechanical ventilation. Dr. Yea has several active studies, including biomarkers, epidemiology, pathophysiological mechanisms in the field of pediatric ARDS. He is a huge ARDS nerd and the absolute best interview for this topic. We are so lucky to have him. Oh yeah. And in this episode, we go into the fundamentals and a little bit beyond in the fundamental pathobiology, definitions of ARDS, and what should be your practical bedside approach the next time you're in the PICU taking care of one of these patients. Yes. Let's get those clinical pearls and get right to the content. Take your breath away. If everyone's ready to get started, I am just so happy that we have Nadir Yaya here. Thank you for coming on the show. And I'm, I'm pronouncing your name right. Is that correct? Close. Nader Yaya. And just for the purpose of the show, is it can, can we just call you by your first name, Nader? Please, please. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, we're in an informal group. And so we just want to sort of start some get to know you questions. So, you know, so our audience can get to know you a little better. Can you give us sort of like a... You know, not necessarily a one-liner, but, you know, a couple lines of just describing yourself so we know who we're talking to. Sure. I'm a uh, intensivist at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm a uh, married father of two little girls, two and five. I am probably a little bit too comfortable with conflict, and I watch an inordinate amount of football, and I have to tell myself constantly, like, how terrible professional football is for everybody involved and that lives in tension with how much i enjoy it excellent excellent that speaks to me a lot actually i feel like i'm the exact same way (laughs) it's a it's a constant struggle let's go with alice first do you have any questions yeah uh what is a book that every physician should read so in all honesty i really wish that every physician would read the red covered crc press biostats and epidemiology textbooks 
just so we can stop doing stupid statistics over and over and over and pretending things that economists and statisticians have figured out like a century ago are suddenly being reinvented here. And knowing that that's unlikely to necessarily actually happen, I do like the book better by Atul Gawande. I don't always love medical nonfiction, but I do like I do like better because it it kind of gets at that tension that a lot of us have where we're operating with imperfect information and we're going to make mistakes. And and just the nature of how little we know about the body, how little we know about physiology, coupled with the fact that you're forced to make decisions in in a high stakes environment with limited information, you're occasionally going to be wrong. And that book, I think better than some others, leans into that as a necessary part of learning so that, you know, once you once you have made a mistake or once you've encountered an error, like what are you going to actually do with it after you've gotten over the initial period of processing it and feeling bad? Like you can you can let it paralyze you and and let it affect the next ten decisions you make are like reactionary to the last thing, the last mistake you made, versus like trying to grow from it in a way that really you're obligated to the next patient to like actually have learned from that last experience. And I think that's the best you can do. And and so like I think that that book gets at that better than most others that try to tackle that topic. Fantastic suggestion. I don't know if we've had that one yet. So we'll definitely we'll put that on the list. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, no, I try to be original. Zach, you got anything? Write write down the write down the biostats thing too, man. That's that's <laughs> we'll do. Not, we'll, we'll do. We'll get that on, on the list. About that. It's on the list. <laughs> Literally any Evie's textbook would be acceptable. <laughs> yeah. So um maybe a spin-off from your book suggestion. Do you have a favorite failure that you'd like to share with us and maybe what you learned from it? I've <laughs> I have a failure. Um, favorite failure is a tough one. It's a, I was a second year resident at uh, Children's Los Angeles, and I'd been taking care of a patient uh, on an overnight call. And I had known this family like off and on. They, the patient had been in the hospital for, um, for therapies, as many onco patients are. And uh, in this particular instance, I was asked to start a infusion of tacrolimus. And the attending going out the door told me the dose, and I ordered the dose. And uh, sometime at around 8 or 9 o'clock, pharmacy called me and said, that dose seems high. Are you sure that's the dose? And I was like, that's the dose. It's the dose I wrote down. That's the dose I ordered. That's the dose. That's what they told me. And I was super wrong, like super wrong, like tenfold wrong. Like I uh, shut the kid's kidneys down and put them into fluid overload ARDS, and they ended up getting coded, bagged, intubated that night. And I told the mom the next morning that all that had happened. And the lesson there at, in retrospect is obvious. Like pharmacy called me on a mistake and like, and, and like I just powered through and like the right move at that point would have been to like, you know, question that and be like, how, how confident am I of like how right I am at that moment? Because somebody else who's highly qualified and highly trained has just called me on something and said like, that thing you ordered seems very wrong. And that is not what I did. And so, like, I obviously learned that aspect from it, but that actually doesn't make it my, like, favorite mistake. My, when I told the mom about it the next morning and I went home and, like, you know, kind of felt, like, bad for about a day, then the, the kid's still in the PICU the next day. And I'm doing, like, now a daytime service in on oncology. So, it's, like, four floors away or something like that. I forgot exactly what the layout was, but it was, like, not next door. And I'm, like, I'm still in onco. The kid's still in PICU. And they wanted to do something. Uh, the PICU wanted to do something. And the mom asked my opinion because she knew me mm. and trusted me. That was the lesson. That's very powerful. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Yeah, like a day later. 
it seems that I didn't mean, I didn't mean to bring the yeah. tone down, but no, like no, you but asked. <laughs> it seems like learn the lesson learned from the mistake is owning it with your patients and yeah. the bond that formed with this family was very meaningful. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Yeah. I don't know how what we can follow errors. up with. How to, yeah, how to handle error is like a big theme in my own, <laughs> for better or worse. consider <laughs> myself an expert on errors. Um. <laughs> All right, so let's get, let's get right to our case from Cash Like Children's. So our patient, Mo Peep, it's a previously healthy four-year-old boy who's admitted to the PICU from the emergency department with respiratory failure. His mom reports that the past two days, Mo began having symptoms of fever and cough, but over the past 24 hours, he's developed worsening shortness of breath and irritability. In the ED, he was volume resuscitated, given antibiotics, and intubated due, low, due to low oxygen saturations despite 100% oxygen with a non-rebreathing face mask. He's now sedated and mechanically ventilated in the ICU. The team is concerned that he's developing ARDS. So to jump right into our conversation Will you tell us exactly what we mean when we say a child is developing pediatric ARDS? Absolutely. So the patient's definitely developing ARDS. The underlying thought process there is that they're developing acute. So this didn't happen chronically. This isn't like an interstitial lung disease, which is happening and getting worse over weeks to months. This is acute, which we operationalize as like uh, whatever got them into this mess got them there within seven days. It's respiratory. So that's the acute hypoxemic respiratory failure part of it. It's, it's, this is primarily like a lung-specific organ failure that we're talking about. And so that's operationalized by either PF ratios or oxygenation indices or the equivalents of those using the pulse oximeter. And it's not explained by cardiogenic or hydrostatic pulmonary edema. So this isn't like an aneuric patient who became fluid overloaded and flooded their lungs. This isn't a heart failure patient with elevated left atrial pressures causing like pulmonary edema. This is like an inflammatory exudative, like barriers are breaking down, endothelial and epithelial barriers in the lung are breaking down, and uh, an active inflammatory process is pushing protein-rich exudate into the alveolar airspace, and that's what's flooding their lungs. And so it's acute, it's respiratory, it's distressing, it's a syndrome. The syndrome part of it is actually like, I wouldn't even ignore that aspect of the definition. The ARDS in and of itself is is about as helpful as saying that somebody has cancer. And so it's, it's accurate, but it's not particularly helpful as saying like that somebody has Philadelphia positive leukemia or something like that, right? So a lot of times in this patient and from that prodrome that you're describing, it's probable that that patient has ARDS secondary to a direct pulmonary infection or like a pneumonia. So like a pneumonia ARDS would be a more helpful categorization. And that helps like reduce the syndrome to something like, okay, this, this may need antibiotics in addition to the supportive care for helping their lung organ dysfunction actually operate. And so if that were like aspiration ARDS, you may come up with a different answer. If it were like um, ARDS after cardiopulmonary bypass, you may come up with yet a different answer as to like what supportive measures are needed in addition to the lung-specific failure that you're talking about. One question I have. So when we say pediatric ARDS, is it the same as any ARDS like with adults? Is it Would it be similar pathophysiological processes or is it just little ARDS? <laughs> <laughs> It's ARDS, but cuter. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, the short answer is that we don't know, but that's a, it's a little bit of a cop out when we say that. So ARDS, when it was initially described by Ashba in 1967, had two patients that were like around 18 years old, if not actually 18. And so they could have fallen under the purview of pediatrics. And the subsequent 
ways to define ARDS when it was initially called adult respiratory distress syndrome, reflecting off the fact that it looked a little bit like surfactant depletion neonatal RDS or respiratory distress syndrome. So like preemies, which are born in a surfactant deficient state. And then in the 80s with the Murray lung injury score, and then in the 90s with the AECC definition where it became acute respiratory distress syndrome, that was a little bit of an acknowledgement that kids also get this shock lung phenomenon. We just don't know exactly whether it's exactly the same, but they seem to have a similar sort of uh, problem with it. And by and large, the triggering etiologies, although the percentages may be a little bit different, are still primarily infectious, mostly pneumonia, and then non-pulmonary sepsis, and then a smattering of other things like aspiration. Back in the 80s and 90s, blood transfusions and trolley were invoked more, aspiration, trauma, pancreatitis, cardiopulmonary bypass, burns, other sorts of other sorts of inflammatory, occasionally infectious injuries that would like that would trigger it, but most commonly by pneumonia and sepsis. And so in that sense, yes, it seems to be a very similar phenomenon, just tinier, right? It's like it's it's just occurring in tinier humans, where like you have the same acute inflammatory pulmonary edema caused by something else, which is causing respiratory failure bad enough to typically need intubation. And so that can be oversimplified to missing some of the key differences between adult and pediatrics. So animal models have suggested that for the same degree of insult, younger animals will mount a less robust inflammatory response. So for the same level of like uh, inciting injury, you'll get like lower levels of IL-6 and TNF-alpha. And at it'll take higher tidal volumes to cause a comparable amount of ventilator-induced lung injury in a smaller animal than it does a bigger animal. And this is even normalized to their relative body weights or their FRC or whatever way you want to like kind of try and compare apples to apples as best you can. But there is this sense that kids may not necessarily have quite the same inflammatory milieu, even though the setup and the clinical presentation can look very similar. And this is this is corroborated to some degree, although indirectly, by the fact that the mortality rate for pediatric ARDS is approximately half of what it is for adults. And that's at all levels of severity. And so adult adult mortality rates hover around like 40%. Pediatric ARDS mortality rates hover around 20%. Severe ARDS mortality rates hover around 60%. And for pediatrics, it's about half that at about 30%. So that certainly could be explained by the differences in comorbidity that adults versus children have. Like they have different comorbidities and they have, and certainly like, and some of that could also be explained by how you choose to enact a DNR or pursue limitations of care differentially between older people and and children. But it does raise the question that it's not entirely clear that we are in fact talking about the same process, even though nominally there there's, there's many similarities. And then neonates, don't even get me started. Like neonatal respiratory distress syndrome is a surfactant deficient state caused by prematurity and immature lung development. But if one of those babies gets pneumonia, then they could have an inflammatory exudative process, which is very similar to ARDS in, in any other context, right? But how a preemie handles that with their immature immune system, underdeveloped lung, and naturally surfactant deficient state, that's that's a whole separate question as to like, are we are we still talking apples to apples at this point, even though all of them fall under a syndromic umbrella, which is about as helpful as calling all of that stuff cancer. Oh, wow. Thank you, Nair. That really shines a light on the clinical variability. And I, I appreciate the idea that the inflammatory milieu is different in children than adults generally. As we define this syndrome specifically, how heterogeneous it might be, we've moved recently, or at least in 2015, from the Berlin definition to the PALIC definition. Am I yeah. uh, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Consensus Conference definition? You got it. How would you, how would you describe that? 
change. So Palak was building off uh, some of the strengths of the Berlin definition in adults. And so what we really liked about Palak was that it was pediatric specific. And so we made, there were a few, there were a few changes to it uh, relative to what some adults uh, had done at that point. The adults had used mild, moderate, and severe. They introduced a minimum level of CPAP. And uh, they otherwise operationalized some of the vagueness of the 1992 AECC definition, the American European Consensus Conference definition. So we liked what some of their formalization had done. So like acute became formalized to within seven days. The pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of less than 18 became formalized to recognizing that people don't place PA catheters anymore, became formalized to, look, just either get an echo or just have a pretty good idea that this isn't heart failure. Bilateral infiltrates or bilateral opacities in pediatrics, in a nod to the really poor inter-rater reliability of x-rays, just became new opacities. And so it could be unilateral or bilateral. And probably the most striking change is that the pediatric uh, definition for ARDS used oxygenation index rather than PF ratios, and it in- introduced a fourth category of uh, unstratified by severity, just called non-invasive pediatric ARDS. And so, like if you were you were on a non-invasive interface but uh, met PF ratio criteria, then you could you could have ARDS. You just weren't stratified as mild, moderate, or severe. You were just called NIV. And then mild, moderate, and severe was restricted to intubated ARDS and uh, defined according to oxygenation index. And for both uh, PF ratios and OIs, they gave the SpO2 equivalents of SF ratio and OSI. And so that was a nod to the fact that you can have a fair amount of hypoxemia, but not everybody, there's a lot of institutional variability in terms of who gets arterial blood gases and who places arterial lines. And so you didn't want to restrict enrollment for studies or for cohort studies or for trials to people who like mandated getting a um, a blood gas if that wasn't within the workflow of whatever institution um, they were working in. And so like you still want to include those subjects because they probably had ARDS, they had hypoxemia, you just needed a different way to measure it. And so I think the use of uh, unilateral versus bilateral chest x-ray and the use of OI and OSI instead of PF ratios are probably the major deviations from Berlin. But otherwise, it like adopted a lot of the same structure as Berlin because we because I think Pollock did appreciate the formalizing of some vague concepts that Berlin was trying to do. So just to summarize for our listeners, um, especially those who are not uh, yet critically care trained, would you mind just walking us through the the definition for ARDS right now for pediatrics? And that's a great de- uh, sure. Just some of the de- yeah, just some of the definition uh, criteria. Absolutely. So we have the uh, the numbers for our um, for our general pediatricians. So uh, the acute is formalized as having an inciting insult within seven days of meeting uh, the rest of the criteria. And so like you couldn't have had your pneumonia like three weeks ago. And now like now you're hypoxemic. It's like like you need to invoke something new that happened within the last seven days. The chest x-ray criteria is defined as new opacities that are not um, atelectasis or pleural effusion. The opacities can be used by x-ray most commonly and like but they but if you had a CT or ultrasound we would probably allow that although like the definition doesn't explicitly say that but like there's some there's some nod to like you need some sort of imaging criteria to get you there the pulmonary edema which is presumably what the opacity is representing cannot be hydrostatic and so you need some evidence if you have some suspicion that this could be hydrostatic pulmonary edema then like you need some way to prove that it's not that so you can certainly have sepsis with myocardial dysfunction and ARDS, 
And so then what you're saying is that the heart failure is only partly explaining the pulmonary edema, but the overall sepsis inflammation is explaining the rest of the pulmonary edema. And so this patient does, in fact, have pediatric ARDS. But if you had somebody with just straight myocarditis or dilated cardiomyopathy, and so you look at that x-ray and you say, you know what, I think 100% of this pulmonary edema is due to LA hypertension and and cardiogenic pulmonary edema, then that patient would not have pediatric ARDS. And that retains a bit of subjectivity. And it's not any more or less subjective, frankly, than a wedge pressure, but but the the clinical interpretation does open itself up to some subjectivity. Finally, the severity stratification is um, NIV, mild, moderate, or severe. So NIV requires you to have a PF ratio less than 300 or a SF equivalent. The invasive intubated, that is to say intubated definition, OIs of 4 to 8 are mild, 8 to 16 are moderate, and greater than 16 are severe with SpO2 OSI-based equivalents for each of those um, that are listed in the table that define them. Patients with cyanotic heart disease and who are chronically mechanically ventilated can also have pediatric ARDS, but their severity is undefined. They just need to have a deterioration in oxygenation above their baseline or worse than their baseline, but they also do not get any further stratification beyond that. So as a clinically practicing uh, MedPeds doctor, it's been a long time since I've been uh, in the ICU. and we're we're saying a couple of uh, things that I I don't quite recall. So, what is a P P to F ratio? Could you explain that a little <laughs> bit? Uh, might help. You know, of course, mostly for our medical student listeners, but definitely I could use that uh, as well. No, of course. So, like, so the P F ratio is the ratio of the P A O two on an arterial blood gas to the F I O two uh, presented as a fraction of inspired O two. Uh, which varies between 0.21 or room air and 1 or 100% oxygen. And the the FiO2 part of that equation is most accurate in intubated patients because there you're getting 100% delivery straight into your lung. And so that would be the most reliable of the measurements of FiO2. And and the PALIC definition operationalizes the PF and the OI in such a way that like that it tries to tell you like how to calculate the FiO2 if you're on a non-invasive mode to get you as close as possible to inaccurate uh, FiO2. And then in an intubated patient, you're using oxygen index or oxygen saturation index. And that is the PF ratio essentially like uh, normalized to the mean airway pressure. So it's the mean airway pressure divided by the PF ratio would give you the oxygenation index. So I understand the PDF rate, PDF ratio and I understand he's mentioned earlier that PALIC, one, th- one thing they wanted to do was to add on the oxygenation index or the OSI. What advantage does that really have if, for us at the bedside taking care of these patients? That's a great question. So one of the questions that uh, the pediatric group had was, is a patient who's on a PEEP of 10 and a mean over pressure of 15 and whatever PF ratio you get with that, is that the same patient as if you were on a PEEP of 20 and a mean airway pressure of 25? And if you got the same PF ratio, should those two patients be categorized the same severity, even though one of them is getting twice the amount of PEEP? The Berlin group also thought about this. The Berlin group actually, like in the long text of the JAM article talking about Berlin, they said that for the severe category, they thought about making severe uh, ARDS for adults actually require a PEEP of 10. 
and that that did not improve the area under the curve for mortality discrimination, so they discarded that as part of their definition. In pediatric ARDS, when the palate group was thinking about this, they thought that OI captured the concept of what they were getting at a little bit better than establishing mean airway pressure or PEEP cutoffs across the mild, modern, severe stratifications. And so it kind of incorporated the degree of support into the PF ratio. Uh, in excuse me, in, uh, it incorporated the degree of ventilator support alongside the degree of hypoxemia to give you a summary metric, which may be a more accurate reflection of how sick the kid is. In prospective studies, OI marginally but consistently outperforms PF ratio in terms of discriminating mortality. A deeper, more annoying question is actually whether mortality discrimination is the best use of a mild, moderate, severe severity stratification? Or are there other things that you could use to that the definition should be doing other than predicting mortality? But the long and the short of it is that that's how we got to OI and OSI, is that like we wanted some way to like incorporate like degree of support because we thought that there was a problem by assigning people with different vastly different levels of ventilator support, but the same nominal oxygenation to the same severity category. And we needed some way to operationalize it, and OI was built in. And pediatrics, because of NICU and ECMO, uh, was used to thinking in OI as much as it was used to thinking in PAO2 to FIO2 ratios. Maybe just a quick review for our, our listeners and our learners um, and medical students. The main determinants of oxygenation are your FIO2 and your mean airway pressure. Uh, and the OI allows you to incorporate that mean airway pressure essentially through PEEP into describing how severe your patient's ARDS is, if I got that right. Yeah, it's perfect. Awesome. And then just to also summarize, we talked a little bit about some of the common causes of pediatric ARDS. We mentioned pneumonia, we mentioned sepsis, but just to complete the uh, the piece, is there anything specific that we should think about um, when we think ARDS big picture in our differential diagnosis? I definitely think that uh, infectious causes uh, are responsible for about 75% of ARDS. And like broadly, pneumonia, infectious pneumonia, many of which are caused by viruses and you're never going to grow a, a actionable bacteria. But in immunocompromised patients, definitely like look really hard for an infectious source because one, they're immunocompromised. And so there's certainly a risk for a infection of some kind or another, whether viral, bacterial, or fungal, or cryptic, or weird, or otherwise, right? Like, but, but that is a population in which I would look harder than average for making sure that I'm not missing a treatable infection. And then other things which could cause, um, like in, in a gross categorization is direct versus indirect lung injury. And so that's that's a way of thinking about whether the lung epithelial barrier is damaged first and the, and the injury came in from the airway side and then spread to the rest of the lung or indirect lung injury in which the injury propagated through systemic inflammation and may have damaged the endothelial blood vessels first and then invaded the alveolar epithelial space. So direct lung injuries are examples of like pneumonia, but aspiration, uh, smoke inhalation, drowning, uh, like charcoal aspiration after like a, after like a, a, you know, an ED toxicology misadventure gone bad, things like that. And indirect lung injuries are things like sepsis is the, is the prototypical like systemic process, which probably hits the endothelium first and then the epithelium. And then you also have things like cardiopulmonary bypass, CART-19, or engineered T-cell therapies and other versions of like uh, engineered T-cell therapies and the associated cytokine release syndromes with them, pancreatitis. I'm certainly missing a few, but and, and cardiac arrest, for example, is like a is probably something which can cause ARDS, but which is a combination of like 
uh, systemic inflammation that may be involving blood vessels before it actually directly affects the lung. But broadly, those are some ways to think about uh, categorizing where the etiology of ARDS is coming from. Oh, wow. And definitely sort of the bread and butter of pediatric critical care medicine, right? All of these things from transplant to drownings to... Um, I do have a question. So you are an expert in this area. When you're on a stretch of service... Oh, yeah. Uh, When you're on a stretch of service and you're looking at your numbers in the morning, what value do you find yourself calculating? How do you trend it? And how does that change the way you're thinking about your patient on in the day to day? That is a phenomenal question. That is a phenomenal question. Um, OI and is is probably the value that I that is not immediately obvious to me. And there's a there's a there's the gestalt of knowing that yesterday my patient was on a peep of 12 and 50%. And today they're on a peep of 10 and 40%. And the next day I round on them, they're on a peep of eight and 30%. There's that overall trend that doesn't require me to necessarily do any math. But calculating an OI in the background, because it's for whatever reason, although you would think that we can put people on the moon, but we can't, you know, get an EMR to give a consistent oxygenation index in my flowchart. Um, that makes it a variable that like is helpful to track. And I've actually, it, there, there have certainly been times where I've been rounding and there's an uncertainty as to whether a patient has plateaued or is actually getting worse or is getting better because one variable may have gone up, but the other variable may have gone down. And trending out a summary metric like OI has actually been quite helpful in terms of saying like, no, this, this, this dude's getting worse. And we should actually, we should actually be like, if this patient is getting worse, then we should either reconsider what we're doing. Like, are we in fact maximizing this current therapy and we just need to ride this out because this is the natural history of whatever they have? Or should we be thinking about what to do for refractory ARDS and our next set of therapies that um, that we may need to invoke beyond the basics of supportive care? Sure. It seems people start talking a lot more about OI when it gets above 20. Certainly true, because and I think that that speaks to the um, that speaks to the fact that like I think the gestalt that you have under twenty is that the patient is manageable or like the settings are not that bad, and that this is like an ex- this is not something that I need to go through the exercise of like calculating every single time on round. You can broadly tell whether somebody is like better, worse, or same without going through the entire math of like either of calculating either a PF ratio or an OI, you can kind of tell like from the ventilator settings in the FIO2 that the lung is either adequately recruited or not, and that the degree of support is either tolerable or not. And it's only when the numbers start exceeding that, that you're like, okay, let's do some math here. Whoa, that's actually sicker than I gave him credit for, you know, that kind of, that, that, that that's it. And it's right around 16 or 20 or severe pediatric ARDS, according to the palate guidelines, when people do start like noticing those numbers and caring about them, which could also be true in adults. I think people like when Ashbaugh described ARDS and not to, not to belabor this point, but the 1967 description of ARDS was patients who were having trouble hitting a hundred percent saturation on a hundred percent of FIO2. So like these patients were PF ratios less than a hundred. And so these were the severest of the severe that are generally being described if you like worked out their PF ratios, right? And so a lot of, and, and there's a tacit acknowledgement of this if you look at the more recent adult trials as well. All the negative trials, except for the tidal volume trial in 2000, okay, like all of them have, all of the negative trials have recruited patients with PF ratios less than 300. But the neuromuscular blockade trial of in like, I don't know, what was that, like 10 years ago now? 
And that recruited patients with PF ratios less than 150. And the proning trial recruited patients less than 150. And the ECMO trial had very stringent oxygenation criteria. So there is even an acknowledgement, a tacit acknowledgement that like that the milder and moderate forms of ARDS may not actually need the degree of intervention and support that the more severe versions of ARDS need. And there's a tacit acknowledgement of that, whether the adults, the, whether the adults choose to formalize that or not, or acknowledge that or not, there's, there's a sense of that happening in adult ARDS as well. The only positive sure. trials come from the sick patients. Yeah, that's where there's work to be done, right? The yeah, sick is, exactly. The sick yeah. Is good. Oh, yeah. So we've talked a lot about the definition of ARDS. We talked about the kind of the pathobiology behind it. I kind of want to bring us back to kind of practical bedside taking care of patients. Nutter, what are those fundamental treatment strategies that we should bring with us to the bedside anytime we're taking care of a patient with ARDS? Absolutely. So the premise of ARDS management is that there's an underlying etiology that should be treated. There's a source, if it's infectious, there's a source that should be either treated or controlled. And not to forget that, because again, like, you know, ARDS in and of itself as a syndromic definition is just, it's lung specific organ failure, but it's being caused by something. So that cause needs to be tamped down, identified and tamped down. And if you're unable to do that, and like, and things are still getting worse, then don't spend, uh, spend as much time thinking about whether you have source control as you do thinking about what your next steps of pulmonary specific management are. That being said, the organ failure specific support for the lung is predicated on the idea that mechanical ventilation is necessary, but it probably hurts you. And so there, the idea is not to necessarily achieve perfection. It's to achieve enough function of the lung to provide adequate oxygenation ventilation to keep you out of like, you know, to keep you out of cardiac arrest and further organ failure, balanced against the idea that if you gave too much ventilator support or tried to optimize gas exchange too perfectly, that it would come at a cost that you're not necessarily willing to pay, that 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 mechanical ventilation cost itself is potentially toxic. And that could be directly through high ventilator settings causing ventilator-induced lung injury, or it could be that the ventilator settings and the degree of control of dyspnea that you need require prolonged sedation neuromuscular blockade, or it could require to the degree of inflammatory control you need needs long courses of steroids. So everything is kind of intention there. You need just enough control of physiology to provide adequate gas exchange and keep them out of shock and keep them from arresting and to keep other organs from failing balanced against the knowledge that all of the therapies that you have to try to help that including the ventilator, are themselves potentially toxic. And everything comes down to risk-benefit. Every intervention you have comes down to risk-benefit. PEEP, FIO2, tidal volume, uh, whatever pressure limits you set, whether they're PIP or plateau, potentially rate, what pH limits you have, how high you're willing to go before you try an alternative mode of ventilation, how high you're willing to go before you try proning or neuromuscular blockade, or more expensive experimental therapies like nitric oxide or ECMO. So, um, again, I wanted to reiterate, treat the underlying cause. It's so important. If if the kid's back to remake, they're never going to get over their ARDS. On rounds, all the time I hear, we're going to use lung protective strategies. We're going to use an open lung strategy. What does that mean? So, to clarify, those are two separate things. And so, and and I'm sure as this group, this is, you know, this is like a bunch of ICU geeks. And so, I'm sure you guys are like all over this stuff. But lung protective and open lung are like different concepts. Lung protective is the recognition that there is inappropriate stresses and strains that are being applied to the lung during mechanical ventilation. And can we find, because stress and strain are are physics principles that are difficult to quantify at bedside, can we find an adequate surrogate of stress or strain and or strain 
which uh, we can operationalize in terms of making ventilation lung protective. So people have tried tidal volume and people have tried pressure limits. And more recently, people have tried driving pressure or delta P or plateau pressure minus PEEP. And people have also considered power, mechanical power, as like a a summary variable, which incorporates tidal volume pressures and respiratory rate as the overall energy delivered at a unit time to the lung. And whether that is a more appropriate measure of stress and strain and like the, the potentially damaging stuff that a ventilator is causing to the lung. So lung protective ventilation broadly is try to limit that. And operationally, that comes out as limit your tidal volumes, limit your driving pressure. Open lung is a separate thing. Open lung is the idea that if you can recruit the lung and spread the damage out over more lung, then overall, there will be less damage for a given tidal volume or for a given driving pressure. And so that is a that is the high versus low PEEP trials. That is the recruitment maneuver trials. That is the using an esophageal catheter to measure the thoracic pressure and trying to subtract that out in inspiration and expiration. And that is the stepwise recruitment, de-recruitment maneuver used in trials like ART. So that's open lung, which is a different but related concept. The idea there also has a protective strategy. The idea being that if you like, if you were to open the lung then the same volume is spread out over more lung, and so it's more compliant, so the pressure should be lower that you reflect back, right? And so like the the underlying tenets of it are still lung protective-ish, but it's a different idea. Lung protective in and of itself is really just try to limit tidal volumes. And that predominantly came from the tidal volume trial. There was a series of tidal volume trials in the uh, 90s, late 90s, culminating with the publication of the ARMA trial, which was the um, 6 per kilo versus 12 per kilo trial, limiting plateau pressures in the 6 per kilo arm at 30 and the 12 per kilo arm at 50. And what that trial conclusively demonstrated is that 12 per kilo and plateau pressure limits of 50 are harmful. What it less conclusively demonstrated was that six per kilo and pressure limits of 30 are beneficial. But if you, sure. yeah, like, I mean, if, if you if you set up a trial where like the control group gets punched in the face every day versus the one that doesn't, then like you may see a benefit if you sabotage your control group hard enough. And arguably 12 per kilo and plateau pressure limit of 50 was doing that. And it says more about the control group in that sense than it does about the intervention arm. But given that that was the successful tidal volume and plateau pressure limits used in the intervention arm, then that has become like largely recommended and adopted. And there's certainly biologic plausibility that this is a reasonable tidal volume range. Like your own tidal volume is probably in the like, you know, seven per kilo range. In the observational study of lung safe, you know, there were a fair number of tidal volumes that were set in the six to eight per kilo range, which, you know, like people, people have some adult practitioners, this was an adult study. And so these were like adult practitioners, even they let kind of their tidal volume slide a little bit up to like eight per kilo. And some of that is, I think, an acknowledgement that like, well, they tested six, but it's not necessarily clear that six is better than eight. And if you can have a better blood gas or less dyspnea at eight per kilo with no clear rationale that six is better, then why not? And so even now, I think the adult world has a little bit of real world tension alongside the academic certitude that is often presented. And in pediatrics, we've kind of adopted that too. So I'm hearing that 
you know, this is common theme in pediatric literature that I've found as well. You test two extremes, you pick one that's clearly superior. Maybe what your patient needs is a little bit somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, you still have the classic motivations for preventing um, ventilator-induced lung injury overall. Are you still thinking about barotrauma, volutrauma, adelectrotrauma, everything like that? We are. Absolutely. That's that's definitely like the the underlying logic of barotrauma and volutrauma is, is this, is that like there's some stress or strain which you're trying to prevent that if you were to pick a tidal volume too high or like caused a transpulmonary pressure that it was too high, that that would be problematic. And can we identify a way to like set tidal volumes and pressure limits that stay within a safe range of this that still allow us to do ventilation? And so Palak has recommended tidal volumes of five to eight for most patients. And then in stiffer, more severe ARDS, they say like you can go down to like as low as four to six to try to keep your plateau pressures less than like 28. And most pediatric practitioners don't actually measure plateau pressure with any regularity. It's a, the most common modes of ventilation we use, use decelerating flow patterns, and PIP is much more commonly tracked than plateau pressure. And so PIP is going to always overestimate plateau pressure. The degree to which it does so depends on like your particular patient and the eye time that you set, but but it's it's generally an overestimation. And um, different institutions have kind of read the PALIC recommendations of keeping your plateau pressures less than like twenty eight, and they generally try to keep their whatever pressure, whatever peak pressure they're monitoring, whether it's peak or plateau, they try to keep it in a lowish range in that like. 30 plus minus two kind of range based also on like the adults is like, because again, there's no, there, there's no pediatric version of ARMA. There's no pediatric version of like low versus high tidal volume or low versus high driving pressure. That'd be a great trial to do actually. And it's not clear how much equipoise there would be to do 12 per kilo anymore as a comparator arm. I think, I think that that legitimately has been proven to be damaging, but certainly like something in the 10 per kilo range okay, would potentially be trialable in pediatrics to actually see whether there's any utility in doing this. We'd, you'd you'd want to know, like, you know, if there's any benefit to it I, uh, also. But, like, but, um, but, but Palak's recommendations based on the adults and probably close enough to physiologic is to five to eight per kilo for most patients, four to six for the severest, stiffer patients, okay, trying to keep your pressure limit below 28. And most people try to follow that and try to keep it in the 30 plus minus two range if they're following pips, which are a little bit higher. This is a perfect segue, I feel like, into just returning to our case, Mr. Mo Peep. And so, you know, he's on that you put him on the ventilator just using those guidelines you just mentioned. Would you mind just taking us through what you're putting on for his vent settings there? Absolutely. So when I'm bagging him prior to intubating him, I'm trying to get a sense of like how compliant his lungs are. And then based on his x-ray and based on his initial like intubation, and you can kind of get a sense of whether you're going to set the PEEP somewhere in the 5 to 8 range, 8 to 12 range, or 12 to 16 range. And from there, what I often do is like I'll set them at about somewhere between around 7 per kilo of tidal volume. I'll set their PEEP based on what I think their initial x-ray and compliance and severity suggest. And then I will assess what kind of peak and plateau pressures I'm getting, most commonly peak pressures. And I try to wean my FiO2 to something which is more acceptable with the logic being this, that if the PEEP that I chose adequately maintains enough FRC, I should not need more than 60% oxygen. And if I cannot, then it's possible that I am at too low of a PEEP. And so then I use like 
it's it's a it's a version of like an escalating peep strategy that's approximately based on the PF uh, the peep FIO2 tables where like patients with higher FIO2s end up on higher peeps. And so I will try to go to a higher peep. Then if I'm unable to wean my FIO2 down to a FIO2 that I'm comfortable with, which is typically for me personally 60%. So let's say I intubate Mo and he feels like he's medium sick between his x-ray, his prodrome, how hard he was to bag when we intubated him. And I put him on a peep of 10 and tidal volume of seven per kilo. And I'm getting peak pressures of 25, but my FIO2 is still 80%, then what I would probably do is escalate the PEEP to 12 to 14. And um, I try not to use double digit prime numbers because I'm superstitious. So like if people put it on 13 or 19, I actually fail them in fellowship and I make them repeat the year. But as long as you, yeah, 13, 17, and 19 are like terrible settings for PEEP. I hope they listen to this but episode. <laughs> just buyer beware um but double digit double digit even numbers are okay and so like so 12 or 14 would be acceptable and then i would try to see if i could wean the fio2 to down to like 60 percent. so if mo ends up on a peep of 14 hitting pips of about 30 on 50 60 percent fio2 then that i would be comfortable with those settings then I would adjust the respiratory rate and the eye time to make sure that his inspiratory flows are completely going to zero, his expiratory flows are completely going to zero. So a different way of saying that is that making sure he's completely inhaling and exhaling, okay, and that he's not breath stacking. His respiratory rate would start off as something quasi-normal-ish for age, and then adjust it according to his end tidal and his blood gases to try to get not necessarily perfect ventilation, but good enough ventilation, like a pH above 725 would probably be fine for most patients, as long as he does not pulmonary hypertension or shock. That makes me think that maybe this patient doesn't want to be acidotic or won't tolerate acidosis as well as some other patients. But given no other contraindication to that, then like, you know, just another like, you know, infectious pneumonia ARDS, okay, with like minimal pressure requirement, then, you know, anything 725 and above is probably acceptable. And you can use your respiratory rate to adjust that. Uh, based on uh, usually based on antidal and and your blood gas, you can you can find. Initially, we'll probably like our institution, my own practice would be for a patient who's sick enough to mandate a lot of these therapies, they'll be getting an arterial line, and so in the beginning, I'll check enough blood gases to establish some degree of correlation between the antidal and the blood gas, and then if there's not that much dead space and I feel that my antidal is reasonably reliable, then I can like usually just stop checking gases quite as much. A really quick follow-up question here. How much do you use your x-ray to titrate your PEEP? And then the scenario would be, kid's a little bit sicker, you're titrating up your PEEP, you have good expansion on your x-ray, but you're still in high FIO2s. Will you continue to go up on your PEEP even though you see good expansion on your film? That is a great question. Um, So that may have too many variables to answer in the abstract. but broadly, yes, if the uh, peak pressures that I'm hitting are not already toxic, I would consider going up on the peep, even if there's some assessment of good expansion on x-ray. And that, I think, has more to do with the interpretability and the variability of x-ray as a snapshot in time versus the way that sometimes films evolve and pulmonary edema lags. And so like even an x-ray, which looks reasonably well expanded, can look more congested if I were to shoot it four hours later, even though you know, nothing has changed necessarily with the patient or their event settings, but just the the picture lagged in such a way that like that it looked more expanded earlier than it did later. And so the variability of x-ray alone makes it hard 
for it to be the sole thing to determine based on people. I think I would say that I would acknowledge it as another piece of data that would make me not just keep going up if that was present. And so I think it's it's a piece of data, but it's not a it's not a it's not a more important piece of data than than the other metrics that I have, such as the compliance that I'm seeing on the ventilator, the peak pressures and the plateau pressures that I'm actually getting on whatever peep I'm getting and whatever FIO2 I'm on. There is the concern that you're like over uh, ventilating, you're you're hyper expanded. And so like, so could you be on the wrong end of a compliance curve and have gone too far with PEEP? And that is certainly like one of the interpretations of this. Places which more routinely use volumetric hypnography, um, they can sometimes get, become, you can get really savvy with volumetric hypnography as a way of like, and of, of uh, looking at whether or not dead space is changing with certain ventilator changes. And you can get a better sense of whether you've actually worsened your dead space if you go up on your PEEP. And so within a few breaths, whereas in uh, people who use traditional end-tidal, uh, time-based end-tidal, then you would need to check another blood gas. And then and then you would ha- you need to make the mental leap of like, oh, it appears that my arterial PaCO2 to end-tidal gradient has widened. And so perhaps I've introduced more dead space with this PEEP increase. Whereas like on volumetric hypnography, you may be able to do that in a, like on a faster basis. So... Nader, your patient Mopeep is failing conventional ventilation. You can't keep him above 7-2-60-60. What would your next step be? And I'm asking this because um, at our hospital, we tend – I wonder if we're a little bit more liberal with APRV. If you look at the open pediatrics material, you see sort of a different opinion. I know that the evidence is mixed. What 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 are your thoughts here? So if I had – pure oxygenation failure. And I thought that I'm hitting pressure limits that I'm unwilling to tolerate with my PIP or plateau. Okay, but I think that this kid does potentially have recruitable lungs, then there are, it is very rational to try APRV. And I'll tell you why, because my understanding of APRV is if I'm willing to leave a kid unparalyzed and actually promote their spontaneous ventilation, then there's there is some potential advantage to that, but not in the like reduced sedation Although that probably has some benefit, but from a purely pulmonary point of view, like it, it actually could make sense to like actually promote some spontaneous ventilation. If you guys look at CTs, cross-sectional CTs of uh, adults primarily, but also children with ARDS, most of the disease is in the posterior parts of the lung. And that, that makes sense because the weight of your body, your abdominal contents for supine ventilation, like all that belly content, the liver the weight of your chest wall and the weight of the ARDS on top of the lung kind of crushes the back of the lung. The back of the lung is where your diaphragm is most active. And so like when that muscle contracts, that dome-shaped muscle, which always looks flat on x-ray, but is in fact a three-dimensional thing, which goes across the back, okay, like there's a fair amount of recruitable lung back there. So your supine, all your diseases in the back, and so all your perfusions in the back because of gravity, but all your ventilations in the front because that those are the least diseased airspaces. And so supine ventilation in diseased lungs is an inherent VQ mismatch, right? So the idea of APRV is that what if I set my eye time long enough to recruit all that crap in the back? And if I were to open up that lung in the back and force the patient to breathe using their diaphragm and preferentially recruiting those lung units that are diseased in the back, where all my perfusion is that maybe on an eye time of one second, 
all of that air will go to the anterior airspaces. But on an eye time of six seconds, then maybe I can open up some of that stuff in the back and force them by breathing through that eye time P high of 30 for six seconds. I can actually open up and recruit those spaces in the back. And there you have a VQ match. Because now you know your blood's all back there because of gravity. And now you forced your lung to try and open up back there to improve VQ matching. That is completely rational. The transpulmonary pressure argument for APRV doesn't necessarily work. Because in terms of it being lung protective, you're reading a ventilator pressure of 30 right? Because you set your P high at 30, but you don't know how hard their negative pressure is breathing. So their transpulmonary pressure, their own, like if you had an esophageal manometer down there, for example, you could be reading a pressure of minus 10 so that the transpulmonary pressure may in fact be quite high. It could be like 40 or something, right? But you're balancing that against the fact that you're actually causing some VQ matching. And so that's the trade-off is that like, like could, is, is spontaneous ventilation at potentially higher pressures than you're able to measure from the airway okay like is that worth the improved vq matching and and improve oxygenation and so that is a rational strategy is a rational testable and trialable strategy to see if it's actually better than standard lung protective ventilation but but there is a trade-off and that that pressure could be part of the trade-off but the improved ventilation perfusion matching could be the benefit and so whether one risk is worth the benefit, I think is best answered in a trial. But absent that, it's a recent, it's a, it's a decent application of physiology to think that way. And I can see how people would get there. If you were a mixed oxygenation and ventilation failure, I would not suggest APRV. And that's largely because it's hard to invoke something with an I to E ratio of 10 to 1 as like the best way to blow off CO2. So if you had a significant CO2 component, while you can ventilate on, on APRV by, I mean, you have to by definition, right? But like, but you, you just don't ventilate that well. And so there in those patients, you may want to consider other modes of ventilation. In pediatrics, people have reached for jet ventilation, people have reached for high frequency percussive ventilation. And then finally, there's the oscillator, which both oxygenates and ventilates quite well. And then finally, there's always ECMO. So like, I hope that answered your question as to like how I think APRV could work. And it's not irrational for oxygenation failure, but every mode, uh, including choosing not to switch and just writing it out with conventional to APRV to oscillator is, I think, I try to think of it in terms of the risk and benefit and whether or not any given risk is worth the benefit on a population basis is best answered by trials. But absent definitive trials, it is reasonable for practitioners to try certain things if they can think about physiologically why it would work. And if hypercarbic failure, you would maybe use the oscillator as your bridge to ECMO. In, in our institution for hypercarbic respiratory failure, we'd probably preferentially try high-frequency percussive ventilation first. But then the oscillator is like if, if um, we had primarily oxygenation failure refractory to APRV or conventional or severe enough that we think that they just don't tolerate any degree of de-recruitment. Every other mode except for the oscillator has a high pressure and a low pressure. And so you always risk some de-recruitment as you go from the PIP to the PEEP or from the P high to the P low. And if your hypoxemia is so severe that you can't actually tolerate that de-recruitment, then the oscillator, because it's a sustained airway recruitment with an infinite eye time, then you never get a low pressure. The cost of that is that nothing is quite as toxic to the right ventricle as sustained MAP. Okay, like that, that, is, that is harsh on the right ventricle. And so that, that can be a cardiovascular like downside to the oscillator. Plus the 
often antecedent or like coincident, like um, uh, increased sedation and paralysis. And for some of our non-critical care um, listeners, would you mind explaining uh, how the oscillator works and uh, and kind of that, that hopefully we'll be able to understand a little bit about why that's uh, the per the you know the high maps are going to be a problem. No one knows how the oscillator works. <laughs> everyone, everyone who everyone everyone who does is is lying to you a little bit, but I'll give it my best shot. The um, the oscillator does work, but it is not entirely clear how it works. The oscillator uh, functions like how most ventilators, how conventional ventilation has a a high pressure and low pressure, a pip and a peep that you go to, okay, and that you you spend some time at, and then you that's bulk flow ventilation. That's how air moves back and forth. Oxygenation, as was earlier mentioned, is a function of the FiO2 and the area under that pressure time curve, also called the mean airway pressure. So in the oscillator, what it does for mean airway pressure is set a real mean airway pressure. You just set a single pressure and it just stays there. And you can oxygenate along that way. Like all you need to do is set a map of like 30 and an FiO2 of whatever, and you can oxygenate along. What you can't do is you can't ventilate. You can't blow off CO2 if you just leave somebody on CPAP and FiO2. And so they'll asphyxiate. Okay. So you need some way to blow off CO2. And that's what the oscillation does. And so the oscillator, while you're at a sustained CPAP with FiO2, you have a drum which beats back and forth, which uh, creates high frequency movement of sub dead space tidal volume of somewhere around one to two per kilo. And that high frequency oscillations okay, are able to move CO2 through somewhat nefarious mechanisms, but it does seem to work. The mechanisms that have been invoked are that like moving sub-death space tidal volumes at a really high frequency can focus the oxygenated air that you're sending in in a way that facilitates getting CO2 out from around the jet stream that you're constantly jetting in and pulling out. And that combination of like high frequency push and pull is able to actually pull off CO2 while you're simultaneously delivering high oxygenated, highly oxygenated air down the middle of that tubage. The pressure that's transduced, okay, like can be really high. And so like if you have a a common oscillator setting would be like a mean airway pressure of 30 and amplitudes of 60, which in theory would be like peak pressures of 90 because it's 60, uh, 60 centimeters of water on top of 30 centimeters of mean airway pressure. The lung never sees the 90 because when you're moving back and forth at such high frequencies, all of that pressure is attenuated down the resistance of the tubing of both the oscillator tubing, the endotracheal tube, the bronchi, the trachea, the bronchi. And so by the time you get to the lung, you're not seeing pips of 90 and the chest exploding off the off the bed. What you're seeing is like a gentle wiggle, which and so like most of the pressure uh, changes at the level of the alveolus are fairly small. And so you're, all of that massive pressure, which was generated at a high frequency, because it's occurring at a high frequency through a resistive system, gets attenuated by the time it gets to the lung. So in that sense, it's a very like combined open lung, lung protective strategy. It should work, right? Because it's doing all the ARDS-y things that you said that you want to do. You want to do open lung with high PEEP. There's the highest of PEEP. It's a sustained PEEP. There's there's nothing else but PEEP. And it's low tidal volume. It's like the lowest tidal volume. It's sub-dead space tidal volume at a really high frequency. But it hasn't translated to benefits in head-to-head comparisons for a variety of reasons, possibly because the protocols of how we're using it are wrong, possibly because 
doing it in pediatrics may work, but doing it in adults may be toxic because their hearts can't necessarily tolerate the same degree of sustained mean airway pressure, possibly because the risk-benefit of proning is more favorable than the risk-benefit of oscillator, or the risk-benefit of ECMO is better than the risk-benefit of oscillator. There's a variety of reasons why it may or may not work, but in theory, it should work for these reasons. And uh, hopefully that answered the question of how we think it works. Sure. So it seems like with these non-conventional modes of ventilation, there are a lot of idiosyncrasies and there are certain patients that may benefit from certain modalities versus others. And you really have to think about the healthcare system that's trying to deliver these non-conventional strategies. And I feel like each provider and each institution will probably have their preferences. I think I think that's actually correct and fair. I think the the more important thing from my, my own opinion on this is that like that in the absence of definitive data, it's more important for you to understand what modes are offered at your institution, how they're used, how they're working, how they think they're moving, oxygenating and ventilating, and then how, what are the advantages and disadvantages of them? And then kind of come to your own sense of like, of I value risk and benefit this way. And in the absence of definitive data, I would prioritize, I would, I would prefer to do this modality because of this. And then because you're bound, because you're, unless you're willing to work 24 7, 365, and like, you know, put up and take down ventilators on your own, you're by definition working in a system. And so you need some sense of buy in from all of your partners and colleagues, including your other faculty, your other your other trainees, your respiratory therapists, and your nurses. And so the entire culture has to feel comfortable about how they're taking care of a child, right? And so it's more important that you understand what's being done. But once definitive data comes out, I think it's also incumbent upon the community to not get locked in whatever their institution is doing as the only way to do something. I think by definition, that means that we need to be more open to like actually having larger multi-center trials in these spaces and actually testing these therapies for efficacy for precisely these reasons is because like, I think we need to be humble about how little we actually know about it. But conceding that that's hard to do for a variety of reasons, funding, you know, sample size, populations, the logistics of a trial and everything like that, like it's very reasonable that people come to institution specific answers. That makes complete sense to me as like, just, I think, I think that's how people work, but it, but then that means that from the level of a trainee onward, think about things in terms of risk benefits, have a good sense of how whatever is offered at your institution, how that works, and then try to hone your own algorithm as to like what your risk benefit for a given modality is. Sure. You know, we could talk about uh, ventilation strategies from ARDS, it seems like, for several hours. Um, I wanted to- I mean, I can. Yeah. That's like- Well, I could definitely <laughs> learn from you for several hours uh, listening. Maybe it'd be something we could have another episode on. Um but maybe to give you opportunity to at least introduce to us and our listeners how you think about other adjunctive strategies for ARDS, kind of outside the ventilator. I'm thinking about prone positioning, INO, steroids. What do Absolutely. you? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the so I think I think the a a common trajectory that people take is medications. So that's most commonly neuromuscular blockade and steroids are the two escape routes. Um, prone positioning, uh, inhaled nitric oxide other ventilator modes, which we've talked about, and ECMO. I think those are like the broad categories of like escape routes that people think about in terms of in terms of this. Neuromuscular blockade has a little bit of data behind it. In like the initial, like the initial Acuracis trial had a suggestion of improved mortality with neuromuscular blockade that didn't pan out in the ROSE trial. ROSE had like some major differences in the patient selection, the actual protocol that made trial interpretation difficult, whether or not ROSE more accurately reflected current practice or whether a curacis 
had changed practice enough that people were giving neuromuscular blockade to the really desynchronous patients who would benefit from it, so that by the time Rose came around, nobody was comfortable randomizing the ones who are most likely to benefit. I think that's an open question. But certainly neuromuscular blockade exists in the armamentarium of ways to improve ventilator desynchrony in desynchronous patients, and that is thought to potentially improve oxygenation and ventilation and reduce peak pressures and unintentional desynchronous double breaths and unintentionally high pressures that are exposed to the lung by like actually taking away the work of breathing. Neuromuscular blockade also does have the benefit in shock patients of, in theory, like reducing the work of breathing, making it entirely dependent on the ventilator. So you could like reduce the amount of cardiac output that's going to diaphragms and respiratory muscles. And it can go to like more important things like brain or kidney or adrenals or something. Right. And so so there's the there's the thought that like neuromuscular blockade should be thought of actually as an ARDS adjunct. Corticosteroids are certainly an option as well. Um, there's been a good 30 years of trying steroids for everything in ICU, and ARDS is certainly no exception. The really, really, really crazy high like room doses of steroids probably are not appropriate. The more reasonable two per kilo per day Midduri solumedrol doses are still currently used in many institutions. People institute them somewhere between 3 and 14 days after ARDS onset, sometimes earlier in the more severe cases. And the DEXA ARDS trial and with COVID and the comfort people have had with dexamethasone as an alternative corticosteroid to use in inflammatory lung injury has also reintroduced the idea of dexamethasone instead of solumedrol. The dexamethasone protocols also tend to be shorter. So people are only married to corticosteroids for like five to 10 days instead of like two to four weeks, like they used to with the solumedrol protocols. And so that remains a ARDS, a moderate, severe, refractory, like, you know, kind of dragging on ARDS, like that, that corticosteroids remain in the armamentarium for that. Um, prone positioning got a lot of attention because the 50% relative risk of mortality improvement seen in Proceva was unprecedented. Like nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. And it was a very clear signal that like that if you pick the right patient population correctly and give this targeted therapy, you may have in fact found a really good bullet that keeps a lot of patients off of more aggressive therapies like ECMO or bad ventilator settings on conventional. And and proning makes a lot of sense as to why it should work. So two broad mechanisms have been invoked for why proning works. One is that you improve VQ matching by like we talked earlier about how like a lot of your disease lung is in the back, but all your ventilation is occurring anteriorly, but all your perfusion is posterior. And by prone positioning, okay, like what you do is you're you don't have quite as much anterior atelectasis because your heart and your sternum can buoy the anterior lung field. So in the prone position, you don't get quite as much collapse as you would in the supine position, where like you have all your abdominal contents, which are crushing a lot of your posterior lung regions. So in fact, in prone positioning, you get to open up all those posterior lung regions and your anterior regions don't become correspondingly quite as crushed because your heart and your sternum can kind of buoy them open a little bit better than your backbone can. So you've improved ventilation perfusion matching. But probably the more important mechanism of prone positioning is that by opening up more lung, you've spread out the amount of lung available for a given tidal volume to be delivered to so that any individual lung unit is not quite as distended. In other words, you've reduced the driving pressure for the same tidal volume by opening up recruitable lung. Said yet another way, and this is like like kind of more how I think about it, 
when you guys breathe, when like when people who don't have ARDS are breathing, there's a very smooth, symmetric, fluid-like behavior of your lung where like your lungs kind of go in and out relatively smoothly, relatively symmetrically. That's not what's happening in ARDS. ARDS is heterogeneous lung disease where like the disease portions are rocks. They're like, they don't move. And the portions that are attached to the rock are not, it's not a homogeneously inflating balloon that's like getting over distended. It's a balloon that's taped to a rock that feels the stress, the added stress of being stuck to this tether to this thing, which won't move, which is additional stress that's being applied to that lung unit. So it's a mix of liquid and solid state behavior. And what you're doing by prone positioning, by opening up more lung, is you're moving the lung back toward homogeneity. And that you're moving it a little bit closer toward a more symmetric open and closing as a liquid state behavior that it wants to be. And so that, we're all saying the same thing. These are all different analogies that uh, that are essentially getting at the same fundamental concept of like, there is some stress and some strain that mechanical ventilation causes. And we are still trying to find the right surrogate to like identify how to operationalize what that is. But these are all, they're, they're all variations on the same theme. Okay. And like, but, but the, the idea that diseased lungs are heterogeneous and healthy lungs are homogeneous, that is probably the way I think that prone positioning is working. And I think that there, there's animal data to kind of bear out. There's, there's human data to bear out that like, that, um, the degree of homogeneity of inflation, deflation, EIT and technologies like that, that allow you to have real time monitoring of inflation, deflation all across multiple breath cycles are good ways to like try to test those things at the bedside and doing physiologic experiments. I was just going to say, I think an extension of what you're saying is there's probably certain patients that will benefit from certain of these certain adjunctive therapies. And that patient who's really dyssynchronous with their ventilator, maybe neuromuscular blockade is really what they right. need to get them over the worst part of their illness. You know, I'm thinking about our COVID patients, pneumonia, but certainly it's many of them when they're prone positioned, they tend to seem to oxygenate better. Um, and then steroids, uh, you know, a patient coming in with ARDS from a hyperinflammatory syndrome, if you don't give them steroids, they're probably not ever going to get better, um, right. like, like a rheumatologic condition. Um, exactly. maybe, maybe to finish off this section, how do you think about using uh, inhaled nitric oxide in your patients? So we do, we do, um, there's been, um, a couple of nitric oxide trials. None of them are particularly big or particularly convincing. There's a consistent sense that they improve oxygenation. There is a less consistent sense that they improve in later days or mortality. The way nitric is currently recommended for use in PALIC is considered to be used as a bridge to or to prevent ECMO. So as part of the kitchen sink peri-ECMO or pre-ECMO, if it's something which is available to you, you can consider using it. It's an expensive therapy and its use is restricted sometimes institutionally, sometimes by resource limitation, like uh, in different parts of the world or even in America, depending on like which system you're operating under and whether ARDS is a indicated use of nitric oxide of an expensive, unproven therapy. But it will improve your oxygenation in that like in two thirds of patients have a positive oxygenation response. Uh, that's measurable by like an improved PF ratio or like um, improved SF ratio if you don't have if you don't have an arterial blood gas in patients with pulmonary hypertension or with some degree of RV dysfunction you may le- reach for it sooner than as a bridge for ECMO so like a lot of the ex-premies who don't necessarily endorse a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension or aren't medicated on sildenafil or anything like that, but who, when they get sick, will in fact have very reactive pulmonary vasculature that cannot handle higher blood flows or like increased cardiac output. Like, I mean, if you if, if you have a normal PVR, if pressure equals flow times resistance, and if you um, have a normal cardiac output 
and you don't have high RV pressures, but then if you double your cardiac output because you're you're starting to get tachycardic because of your shock or your sepsis, and now suddenly your RV is under strain because you can't you can't accommodate that increased cardiac output. Now, well, now you have pulmonary hypertension, right? So, like in some of these, in, there are some populations that that may be prone to pH either because of underdeveloped developing or premature lungs that are getting ARDS or some other comorbidity or frank pH. That's just part of your ARDS. It's a known complication of inflammatory lung injury. It's a known complication of sepsis. There's no reason why like it doesn't also happen in children. And so in some of those patients, if you have some objective evidence, like either a combination of BNP and echoes, then you could consider like reaching for nitric oxide sooner. And it kind of gets at what Zach was saying that like that the targeting of therapies based on physiology or presumed physiology in the absence of definitive data, like that's probably okay. But what a different way of thinking about that is like, if we really do think that that's how it's working, if we think that's the mechanism of action, then we should have the courage of our convictions and do a trial. We should actually test it for efficacy. And if in the case of nitric oxide, if that's actually how we think it's working, if there's a population that we all agree should get nitric, like you have pH, you should get nitric. Okay, then exclude them from your trial. But then like the other ones who like, you know, like, who do you think would benefit from it? And then how do you set up a way to study, like, is this therapy efficacious? And then is this therapy going to improve outcome? And then test it. In the case of, you know, dyssynchronous patients, you come up with like a, like, everybody's going to paralyze this patient. There's no equipoise not to paralyze this patient. If you do that, is there still a population in which we should test the efficacy of neuromuscular blockade? And then we should do that. And we should be willing to at least entertain that as a way of moving our field forward and catching up with the adults. Yeah. Okay. Like identifying the right therapy for the right patient. Like we think of that as in we're good at doing that by our vague descriptors like dyssynchrony or pH, but we're not. We're using those as crutches until we actually can get to a better way to define the population to to do a study. And I think I think we should consider thinking of it that way. Yeah. If there's no clear established benefit, then we should we should do a trial. I, I would I would think that we should at least be open to doing a trial. Well, now that we've moved through our adjuncts, um, how do you think about deciding to put your patient with refractory ARDS onto ECMO? Like everything else, risk benefit. So certain diagnoses which have predictable turnarounds and controllable physiology that I think have a high probability of getting control of. And if the risk benefit is I'm going to continue you on pips of 50 versus putting you on ECMO, or like I have you on the oscillator and you're on like 80% of 5.2 and we're okay now, but we've been escalating for the last two days and I don't have, I don't want to escalate tomorrow and crash you on ECMO. So I'm going to electively put you on ECMO right now when I think I have some metastability, everything ends up being risk benefit. So like if, so certain diagnoses like asthma, uh, pertussis, RSV that have very high survival rates irrespective of the mode of supportive care, if I have reached a mode of supportive care that I think is toxic, then I would consider ECMO because I think that this is a self-limited process that should get better with if I just buy you an X amount of days of time and that is worth the risk of bleeding, anticoagulation, hardware infection that comes with cannulation. Other diagnoses I wouldn't feel quite so sanguine about. Like if you were a double bone marrow transplant for you know a refractory cancer, which has only recently gotten under control and and you look like you're potentially like 
have a fair amount of endotheliopathy that may make this a very difficult to achieve adequate flow degree of shock, like a vasoplegic patient with very difficult to establish, like, you know, like the the level of flow needed to like actually oxygenate and ventilate you. I worry that you wouldn't necessarily be a good ECMO candidate and may be better off by like actually trying to get by with mechanical ventilation, adjuncts, and drugs instead of bypass or partial Mm -hmm. bypass. And so everything comes down to risk, benefit, and candidate selection. One way, like if you put me on ECMO right now because you were like mad at me or something, like I would probably be okay in a couple days. The lesson from that is that like there's there's two lessons from that. One is that institutions that do a lot of ECMO get better at ECMO. And so much like you guys were talking about the fact that like that you should there's a lot of institutional variability in which modalities people reach for. That's true of ECMO as well. But ECMO, just like everything else, you will actually you will get better at it as you do more like surgery. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like a surgeon who does like, you know, fifty hernias, their fiftieth hernia should be better than their first hernia. And so there's an experiential knowledge which is gained from doing a procedure. The other lesson to be gained from this is the exact opposite. That one way to improve your overall survival numbers is to put patients on ECMO who did not need ECMO, okay? Like if you put people on who would have done fine with a couple days on conventional ventilation, then you can improve your ECMO survival because now you've actually started recruiting a lower risk population to a higher risk therapy. And so it's always interesting to kind of see the epidemiology of these things as they change. As people become more comfortable with the technology, there's this period of trying it out on patients who may or may not be great candidates, both in both directions. Not great candidates because they're too sick and not great candidates because it's not clear that they really needed this, you know? And so you always need to be aware of that as you're like, I think, reading the literature in this field. So again, absent good data, and I think Eolia was pretty good data, the adult trial, which demonstrated like the efficacy of ECMO, okay, which had a p-value of like 0.07, but in which had a 30% crossover rate for severe ARDS into ECMO, which would have had a very, very, very significant p-value had those patients not gone on to ECMO in the control arm. Like, I think that was actually fairly convincing that ECMO does work for refractory hypoxemia and hypercarbia. In pediatrics, the risk-benefit ratio is just different. It's just different because like, because we have different mortality rates, we have different cannulation strategies, different institutions have different degrees of comfort with it. ARDS is five times more prevalent in adults. And so even though ECMO was a NICU and then PICU thing, after H1N1, it became an adult thing. And now they're better at it than we are because in the subsequent 15 years after H1N1, they've done more of it than we have because they have five times the prevalence of ARDS. So they're actually better at this than we are at this point, right? Because just just by pure numbers, they've more than caught up to us. They've exceeded us in many ways, just in terms of their experiential knowledge. And so in terms of what that means for pediatric, putting a given pediatric patient on ECMO, absent strong data, okay, then pick your risk and benefit, try to pick your patient correctly, and then decide whether what you're doing right now is better or worse or same as putting them on ECMO. I think that's the best you can do. Yeah. Something to watch in the field for sure. Very interesting on both sides yeah. there. So we try to identify disparities on this show and really possibly make any changes after becoming more aware of, it, of, of these type of things. So is there any disparities that you've seen or identified in pediatric ARDS that you can uh, talk about? 
Yeah, there's there's um this is a this is an excellent question actually. There's probably in 2017, I want to say we participated in a multi-center, uh, multinational like uh, study of pediatric ARDS all over the world. It was a the the intent of the study was to look it was to validate the 2015 PALIC definition, and we found incredible disparities in terms of how different low and middle income countries which therapies they reach for first versus more developed countries with higher incomes, and so. The worldwide burden of pediatric ARDS is not well defined at all. Like a lot of the, like the vast, vast, vast majority of the data comes from developed countries like North America, a lot of the European high income countries. There's some emerging data from China. There's some emerging data from Thailand and the Philippines and Singapore, but there are huge swaths of massive high morbidity, high burden of disease places where we don't even know what causes ARDS. We don't know what causes ARDS in the Indian subcontinent or Pakistan. We don't know what causes ARDS in a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. We don't know what resources are available. We don't know like in terms of are people better off with like when is proning, like how many, like like how many what is the allocation of like, you know, ventilator to per country. Okay. And so the overall burden of what this disease process looks like over the world relative to who's actually dying from it is a huge question mark. Bringing it closer to home, it's not clear that we have even addressed whether different parts of this country in a developed country are completely overcoming the intrinsic disparities of having differential levels of healthcare that are often determined at a more local level like states. Okay, because states and and localities have a fair amount of input into into how a given hospital is funded or how a patient population in pediatrics is it gets their health insurance and that impacts like what therapies are offered and when patients present to care. And so even though like there's certainly a global disparity which we have some sense of that exists and that there's huge gaps in terms of identifying like uh, which patients where are dying of this disease process and what kind of supportive care do they have available to them? And is that why they're dying? And what does their disease process even look like? Are they getting it from the same things that we think that developed country children are suffering from? Or is it not? Even within America, I don't think we have a really good sense on how often do patients of different races and different socioeconomic statuses or accesses to healthcare, are they presenting differently? Are they carrying their comorbidities forward where like the known differences in child obstetrics is that paid forward into known disparities in prematurity? And does that become known uh, like ongoing disparities in pediatric respiratory disease? And is one manifestation of that disparities in ARDS presentation, severity, management, and outcomes? So like I, I that that's a huge question that I worry is just a function of just a perpetual disparity that we all live in because of a fractured healthcare system with a lot of regionality. So both globally and domestically, I think there, there's a ton of areas to investigate with respect to like, are all the children, who's dying of this and why? Like, and, and I think you, that there's a local version of that question as well as an international version of that question. Maybe a quick follow-up question that kind of goes in line with what you're saying. You know, say your patient in the ICU survives ARDS. Yeah. You know, what are the long-term considerations that we might, we might not be thinking about there in the PICU, like neurodevelopment, things similar to that? That's a great question. The um, One of my fellows turned faculty recently is like actually trying to investigate this in a little bit more granular detail. There's a, there's a sense that a lot of 
these children have some degree of like respiratory impairments. And there's there's kind of a known like bronchiolitis, which turns into like, you know, reactive airway disease and some level of that presentation. But the neurocog stuff is actually very understudied. And like there's there's investigators in like uh, Colorado, Aline Maddox is a young investigator who's like pioneering this work. Um, she has a K-23 to like to investigate some of this stuff. And I have a colleague at CHOP who's like investigating some of this stuff also. But a lot of it's like in its infancy. We don't we don't have a good sense as to what happens to these children neurocognitively. In sepsis, which is a parallel disease process, there is an initial worsening with some degree of renormalization by 12 months. And so you get closer to the trajectory you were on. But I don't even know if that doesn't imply a disparity or excuse me, not disparity, but a, a problem, even though it looks like you're back on, on track. And one of the problems with this is I think about trajectories and the way we think about um, adult long-term like trajectory. And that's where we extrapolate a lot of pediatric outcome stuff is thinking about the way the adults do it. But it's just a whole different thing. Adults are decaying. Like adult, like adult ICU and adult ARDS happens at a median age of like 60, 65 or something like that. And by then you're 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 kind of on like a decline. And so you get an acute insult and on the background of the natural decline that comes with age. And then you take an acute insult and how does your body respond to that? And there's a lot of there's a lot of studies which have tried to characterize that epidemiology. But kids are different. Kids should be getting better. Like a four-year-old becomes a five-year-old becomes better. Like they like they, they can do more things. They're faster. They're smarter. They're they're like in a higher grade of school. They have higher cognitive function. So getting back to the level of a four-year-old is not great. And so how does an acute illness, particularly acute respiratory illness, which affects your oxygenation, um, perfusion to your brain, sedative, paralytic, weird medications, exposures, how does that acute insult happen on the background now of expected improvement? Like that is a huge unknown. And so like, I think that's actually like how we need to set up our studies in terms of longitudinally looking at this to be able to answer this. It may not be good enough to get back to where that kid was a year ago, it, it you that itself may in fact be like much more problematic than we're giving it credit for. And so, how to measure these things? What are the right ba- batteries of tests? And like uh, you know, like at the end of the day, you want this kid like doing well in school and playing soccer again, right? And then you you know it when you see it, and being able to like actually turn that into something consistently measurable, and being able to get follow up clinic amongst a group of people who chose this fellowship in part because we hated clinic. And so, so being able to figure out a way to like actually get them to actually do this is like a huge lift. But I think it is an important question to do it correctly. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for um, the time that you've taken with us today on this supersized episode. Um, I just want to sort of wrap up here at the end. And would you care to give our listeners maybe some of your favorite main take-home points so that they have something to, if there's what you know, just a handful of things that when they hang up the the episode, they're like, "This is what I'm going to come away with." What 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 would you want them to come away with? Absolutely. So, identify the cause of your ARDS. Okay, like try to figure out like what's actually causing it, and think of it that way. That that is a source you need to control in order to get out of this. The rest of ARDS care management is all just supportive care for the lung to provide good enough oxygenation and ventilation, knowing that everything you do to them, from ventilator settings to sedation to drugs is not really thought of as right or wrong, but is more thought of as risk and benefit and everything comes with a cost. There may be a benefit to what you're going to offer or what you're about to offer. Like it may pay off to like take away their dyssynchrony. It may pay off to like improve their oxygenation, but it's going to come at some cost. And to give some thought to 
to your interventions as risk and benefit. Operationally for most patients, okay, try to limit your tidal volumes, try to limit your pressures, try to give them enough PEEP and enough oxygen that you can keep them out of shock, keep them from arresting while you're trying to get that source control. And then for the ones where that isn't working, then start being willing to be more aggressive, always being cognizant of risk and benefit with your more aggressive therapies. Excellent. Is there anything you want to plug before you go? Any favorite things, any organizations, you know, things you want our listeners to check out? Oh, yeah, no, that one, that one caught me off guard. Um, join ATS or SCCM. Like if you're, if you're really interested in, um, if you're really interested in the academic parts of the stuff and seeing the, not even just the cutting edge, SCCM and ATS, the American Thoracic Society and the Society of Critical Care Medicine are probably the two main like critical care professional societies where um, pediatric and adult ICU have found homes. And they're open to everybody with any degree of clinical to research to bench interest in anything critical care. And so for lung and ARDS things, I would definitely say like, you know, you don't need to, you don't just need to, you know, be somebody who's actively trying to get grants or publish and things like that to be part of this. Sometimes you just want to be around this just to impact the way you think about how you tackle your therapies in a very practical way, in a very like kind of actionable, this is what I would do in this situation, but just giving you a different way of thinking about these things. And sometimes it's nice just to be around other people who like talk and think about this stuff. Okay. Even if you're never going to like, like necessarily even publish in it, it's good to like, it's good. It's good to like join some of those for, and go to some of those meetings for a few years to see, just to get a vibe of what that's like. And it's a fun community. It's a, like, I mean, pick you, pick you small. It's like, there's not that many of us all over. And so um, after a while you get to see your friends over and over and like, and that, that's actually like a really rewarding part of the, part of the work. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us tonight. And um, I just learned so much and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of this too. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get your show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other place you can get your podcasts. And you can contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Alice and Zach. And for our executive producer, which we don't have one today, but our showrunner, Sam Mazur, is with us today as well. Special thanks to our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I have been Chris the Chew Man Chew. I have been Zach Hodges. I'm Alice Shanklin. And I'm Sam Mazur. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.